Welcome to the Left and Lefter podcast with your hosts, Vince LaMartina and Dean Vergara. This is a Left and Lefter podcast where we discuss the current news and events from the ideological perspectives of a moderate Democrat and a Democratic Socialist. I am your host, Vince LaMartina, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Dean Vergara. Dean, we are almost there. The election is finally around the corner. This is most likely the last recording before we will know who will be elected president in 2020. Dean, how are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm nervous, I think, as as all of, all of us are right now. Um, it's right around the corner. And uh, Are you ready for it to be over? I can't stress enough how much I'm, I'm ready for this to be over. I just I want, I want this awful chapter in American history to come to an end. If, if I wish the election were tomorrow, honestly, I, I just can't wait for this to be over. I am feeling the same exact way. I have Trump fatigue. I have politics fatigue. I'm ready for this election to be over. I can only imagine how people feel who are not political junkies like ourselves, because they have to be just nauseous thinking about another X amount of days left until this election finally uh, happens. So, you know, I'm, I'm ready for it to be done with. I'm ready for it to be over. And like you, I'm ready to turn the page and hopefully move forward. Well, let's go ahead. We have a lot to talk about. Let's get started with our first segment of the episode. Our first segment is reacting to the news, where we react to our news story of the week, our good news story of the week, and we nominate our Dumbo of the week. Our news story of the week is the debates are finally over. We are rounding the corner into the final stretch now. Dean, what is your reaction to the last presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden? And did either candidate's performance change the trajectory of this race? No, I don't think so. I think, listen, Donald Trump showed that when you allow the moderator the ability to mute his mic, uh, he, he tends to rein it in a bit. Um, that that's the only that's the only thing we learned that uh, under extreme circumstances, Donald Trump does have the ability to keep his mouth shut for more than 30 seconds. So that was surprising. Uh, but honestly, you know, we spoke about it right after the debate. And I think it was one of Joe Biden's best debate performances I've ever seen. And this is going back to the to the uh, primary. I think he was sharp. I think he was narrowing into his overall message of Scranton Joe versus Donald Trump and uh, the, you know, the elites that make up our, our financial systems. And I think that message is going to be successful. But really, I don't think any, any undecided voter was swayed uh, one way or the other. Um, and then just a quick note, because we've been talking about it I mean, these panels that they have after, after the debate uh, comprised of undecided voters, how can you be undecided at this point? Like, can we stop calling them undecided voters and just call them uninformed? Because I think that's what it is. And I'm not saying like it's for Trump or Biden. I'm just saying, how do you not know at this point what each individual stands for? Uh, that was the most, 
like I don't want to call it surprising, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you on on both points. You know, as far as the trajectory of the race, nothing really changed after that final debate. I believe it was an unfortunate outcome for Donald Trump in this in a couple different ways. Number one, it was Donald Trump's best performance to date. The bar is set very low um, for Trump at this point. To quote a undecided voter in the state of Pennsylvania, all Donald Trump had to do was not act like a crackhead on the debate stage. That's how low the bar <laughs> had got set for him. So he obviously was able to achieve that. He was much more polished. You could tell that he was listening to what the critique from a lot of people, including his own camp, was about his interjecting, trying to cut off Joe Biden, his aggressive debate style. He did listen to that part of it. However, the content, I think, was still off message for the most part. Trump can barely chew gum and walk at the same time, so I wasn't expecting him to nail both of those. But I think ultimately he really missed an opportunity to talk about the economy. If I was Donald Trump's advisor, I would be telling him classic James Carvel messaging from the Bill Clinton days of it's the economy, stupid. I would have been talking about the economy every chance I got. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, he spent more time talking about Hunter Biden and AOC than he did talking about his own economy. Uh, So I thought he really missed an opportunity as far as the messaging goes. But as far as him being able to not make a complete ass of himself, you know, he, he did a decent job at that. It was unfortunate for him, though, because not, you know, he might have had his best debate and it was much more improved from the first debate. However, Joe Biden equally had a much better debate. Um, That's all you can ask for as a Democrat to see Joe Biden come out on the last debate and really hit a home run. For anyone who watched the debates during the primary, you probably were like Dean and I and have been very concerned this whole time about how were the debates going to play out. Joe Biden really struggled throughout the debates during the Democratic primary. But I think what we saw was the difference in Number one, Joe wasn't as rusty as during the primary, uh, especially in the first couple of pro- uh, Democratic primary debates, even pr- uh, even before Iowa. Joe seemed very rusty. He really struggled. But I think additionally, the format really hurt Joe. Joe's much more long-winded. He's much more like me. He loves to talk. Oh, and yes, he does. Trying, trying, to con- trying to condense Joe Biden into like a 30-second response is never going to work. It takes him 30 seconds to drop a couple malarkeys in there or come on, man. <laughs> So you're never going to be able to get Joe Biden, you know, down to that 30 second because you have 20 candidates on the stage kind of response they were looking for during the Democratic primaries. In this debate format, where there's more long winded answers, obviously, it allows Joe to kind of better articulate his position and tell his story. That's kind of always been where Joe Biden shines as a candidate. You know, that retail politics of being able to share his story, tell who he is, it's so much of what he brings to the table. And I think that's so much of what's working right now is his story of growing up in Scranton, you know, taking the Amtrak every day, having empathy that all kind of feeds into who he is as a person. uh, And it's his personal story. And he tries to make that story in almost every answer that he gives during the debate. So every answer. And and it's positive. It's what people connect to. Unfortunately for Trump, I think one of the biggest mistakes he made and his team made, it was a tactical decision. They tried to go after Joe Biden as someone, you know, right after he secured the nomination, as someone who has lost a step, someone who is mentally just not there anymore. And so when they did that, they set the bar very low for Biden. And then that first debate happened and everything kind of blew up in their face. And now on this last debate, 
I mean, that was not just a good debate for Joe Biden. In my opinion, that was one of the better debates I've ever seen as far as a candidate. He hit every point the way he needed to. And I know there's a lot of people who are critiquing Joe Biden and they like to point out that, oh, I wish he would have said this. I wish he would have said that. But let's face it, Trump was lying like every two seconds. You can't respond to every Trump lie. You have to hold your punch at some point and know where to take your shots. And I thought Joe Biden did a masterful job punching back on some of the big lies that Trump said, and then additionally sticking to his message and sticking to talking to the voters and speaking directly to the camera. Yeah, listen, it's easier said than done, right? It's easier to say after the fact, oh, you should have said this or you should have said that. Um, I thought like what you just said and what I said in the beginning, I thought it was his best debate. I think he had hands down the best one-liner of the night when he said, uh, Americans don't panic, he panicked. That's powerful because it's, it's, it's concise and it gets right to the point. Uh, and it's a perfect uh, illustration of how Donald Trump has failed us and failed our country during this pandemic and long before the pandemic. But, you know, just like from a, a strategy perspective, you know, it's something we spoke about uh, privately how much harm do you think Trump did to himself by skipping the second debate? No doubt it was a big miscalculation on Trump's part not to take part in that second debate. My honest guess of why he did not do the second debate had more to do with the fact that I think his breathing maybe might have been impaired. Um, even you know, while Trump was recovering, you would figure if he was really feeling that great, he'd be all over Fox News. And he picked and he picked and choose when he was on. But like when he did his uh, Hannity interview shortly after being released from the hospital, you could hear the laboring yeah. in his breathing. He struggled to not cough at times. He kept on putting himself on mute. I think that was the ultimate reason why he did not do the second debate, because he did not want that to be shown through a two hour debate, you know, on camera, um, broadcasted to millions of people. However, no doubt, I mean, that really hurt. Any opportunity, when you're losing as, when when you're running in an election and you are losing to the degree that Donald Trump is losing and you need to make up ground, you just want opportunity. You You need there to be that moment where Joe Biden just makes a huge mistake and you can pounce on it to change the outcome of the election, to change the trajectory of where this is going. And not being in that second debate was a moment where he could have uh, really changed the trajectory. And Obviously, it was a miscalculation because they ended up finally having town halls later in the week. And Trump did fine in his town hall appearance. But I guess at the time, the thought process probably was, we don't know if we'll be ready. We don't want to do the Zoom debate because the Zoom debate also puts further uh, emphasis on the fact that he had COVID. So there were all these reasons why Trump did not want to do that second debate. I get it. Don't you think his amazing smile would have been able to... um, cause people to ignore the coughing because he does have an amazing smile. You, you know, he, he has been told uh, he has an amazing <laughs> smile, but uh, according to the Miami Herald, the lady who said that, if you don't know what we're referring to, we were, we are referring to a moment during the Miami town hall that Trump had where an uh, undecided voter said Donald Trump had an absolutely amazing smile and she loved it when he smiled. And I don't think I've ever seen Donald Trump grin more than during that moment. Yeah. He loves to be flattered. Uh, but to quote the Miami Herald, you know, afterwards, after hearing Donald Trump give his answer, she became a decided voter and decided she was voting for Joe Biden. So I don't know. If, obviously, the smile is not enough, Dean. Yeah, I guess not. I guess not. And in defense of Joe Biden, I'd also like to point out, I think he has a better smile. I'd like to see some public polling on that. 
Yeah, I would too as well. But, you know, in terms of, of skipping the second debate, it's like, it's kind of like you're, you're again, I, I'm so sorry we're, we're full of sports analogies. I mean, it, it just comes with the territory. Um, but it's kind of like they were, we were in the seventh inning and Joe Biden was up by four or five runs. And then Trump and his team decided to just skip right to the ninth inning, you know, and, and try to make it up there. Um, but I guess, I guess what you said is probably true. Maybe just he didn't feel like he had the stamina and the physical strength to keep up with Joe Biden, who we know um, has both the mental fortitude and physical capacity uh, to ride bikes, to run up hills, uh, to climb up and down stairs, something that Trump has not been able to display. So, you know, it is what it is. And I think for the Trump campaign too, you know, thinking of the stamina problem, it probably did weigh pretty heavily in their heads. I mean, think about how much media attention it got when Trump was struggling to get down that ramp. I mean, he spent weeks trying to explain it. And then you had the Biden campaign who to this day loves to do loves to put uh, social media clips online of both Joe and Kamala running up and down steps. They, they, they find it still a running joke in their campaign. So, you know, they didn't want to give the Biden uh, team, they didn't want to give the Biden campaign another chance at, you know, making a stamina joke at Trump's expense and hurting the Trump argument of Joe Biden is the one who's diminished. Yeah, listen, I don't want to go too off the rails, but to any potential moderate or dare I say conservative individual who might be listening uh, to the podcast, Maybe you could send us an email or something. Hey, try to explain to me how you can look at Donald Trump, who is obese by any medical standard. He is an obese individual. And look at Joe Biden and come to the conclusion that Donald Trump has the physical ability to be president and Joe Biden does not, because I, I still cannot wrap my head around that. It reminds me of during the final debate, former governor Martin O'Malley of the state of Maryland put a tweet out referring to the fact that Donald Trump was getting more of a close up in the camera zoom and questioned whether it was due to quote being morbidly obese. He later uh, had to delete that tweet, uh, but that was something that you know, uh, Martin O'Malley pointed out during that final debate. Getting back to the final debate, was there any point during the debate where Biden said anything that kind of stuck out to you where you think it could have done harm to him with any undecided voters? Well, for me, I mean, I can't, again, I, I'm, I'm really having a difficult time right now trying to put my mind uh, in the mind of an undecided voter because I, I just don't get it anymore. Um, but for me, as someone that comes, you know, a, a little bit more to the left at this. Listen, I was taken a little aback by his, his stance on fracking. Um, I know there's a bit of nuance there and what he said in the debate and what in the, sorry, in the Democratic primary debate and what he's saying now. I think that's a, a nuance that unfortunately doesn't quite work nowadays in our political environment. 
especially when he started talking about oil uh, and how he wants to eventually get us away from oil entirely. Now, for me, that's music to my ears, as I know it is to you as well. But I kind of think it was a slight misstep for him to say that uh, just because the GOP and the Republican operatives are going to use that sentence out of context over and over again in Texas. And that's my only concern uh, with that. Um, I would agree. And, you know, you saw it even with some Democratic uh, Congress people who are in tough uh, re-election bids in states like New Mexico and states that are on that border, um, like Texas, where they distance themselves almost immediately from what Joe Biden said. Now, after the debate, the, the Biden team did a very good job of explaining what Joe meant. He was referring to eventually getting away from fossil fuel, which I think everyone agrees on. He was not calling for it to be ended right away, that it was going to be a gradual moving towards green new energy jobs and it would be phased out. But of course, the way Donald Trump and the GOP have already taken that little soundbite is that Joe Biden wants to end the fossil fuel industry right away. And yeah, they are going to try to use that against him. But was it a misstep? I know personally, I think he would have liked to say it maybe he would have liked to set it in maybe a different way. But to be honest with you, this is such a different election. I really don't think that people are voting based on fracking or based yeah, on yeah. energy policies. There is so much at stake in this election and that I don't know how in a typical election that might be enough to swing it. But with so much more on the line, with a lot of voters feeling this is a fight for democracy, this is a fight for American values and what America stands for, I think that that type of misstep is not going to hurt Biden. And I don't think it's even going to necessarily hurt him in some of those states that, you know, Democrats are concerned about, like Texas. I saw an interesting stat that talked about the fact that there are more new green energy jobs now in Texas than there are uh, fossil fuel jobs currently wow. in Texas. So um, the that industry is changing. And I think a lot of those people understand that they're going to have to change. That's part of what's going to have to happen because they don't want to be like the coal or the steel industry that refuse to change. And then all those jobs just go away overnight. They'd rather get to a point where they're slowly transitioning and having new jobs pop up and then transitioning transitioning their company into those new jobs. Um, so hopefully that happens and, and hopefully voters are smart enough to understand that uh, to understand that nuance if it is a deciding uh, if it is a deciding reason of how they're going to vote. But again, I question even how many voters are really undecided. You mentioned it in the intro, Dean, and we've talked about this off the podcast a bunch, which is there aren't that many undecided voters. And I even question of the undecided voters, are they really undecided at this point? Like, how do you not know? Like, there's never been an election where you know so much about each candidate that, and they're so different. Like, how do you not know at this point who, to, who, you're, who you're voting for? There is, I mean, you can make the argument, and I think I will. There has never been so little overlap between two presidential candidates uh, in recent memory, at least that I can remember, what attribute, whether it be political or character-based, I can't think of a single attribute that there is a degree of overlap between these two men. And given that delta that is so obvious and plain to see, I don't understand how anyone could be undecided at this point. 
Like if we were to go back to, uh, let's say 2012, Mitt Romney versus Obama, right? If, if we're just gonna push politics aside for a moment, there was a, a pretty clear overlap uh, in that election. And that overlap was that both of those men were good, decent men. And I, I obviously I have many issues with Mitt Romney, uh, especially, you know, his decision on the Supreme Court. But I'm not going to let that blind me to the fact that I do think Mitt Romney is a good man that cares about this country, but he has a very different political and economic perspective on how we move forward. You can't even say that about Trump and Biden. It, it's just so obvious. So, yeah, I think you're right. I don't know how many of these undecided voters there really are. And if they say they're undecided, I just can't understand why. There was a uh, recent New York Times article regarding undecided voters, and it focused specifically on undecided voters in North Carolina. And one of the things that we know about the voters who are undecided, it's the smallest group ever in any presidential election, which makes sense due to the fact that these candidates like Dean said are so different. But it was really interesting when they broke down and spoke to some of these undecided voters of why they were undecided. And one of the people they interviewed to show you how, how much of a nuanced situation it really is, one of the people they interviewed was an evangelical Christian in the state of North Carolina. And that Christian was undecided because they were waiting to see what happened with the Supreme Court battle. And they said if Amy Coney Barrett was nominated and was put on the Supreme Court, that they were going to vote for Joe Biden because they were evangelical Christian voter that had serious questions about the character of Donald Trump. However, their number one reason to vote was because they are pro-life and that if the Supreme Court was settled and they got the extra person in the Supreme Court, that would no longer be their primary core Christian value they cared about, and that on every other issue, she agreed with Joe Biden. And this was someone who voted for Trump in 2016 and has voted Republican their whole life. So there are some weird situations like that that I think that are out there. And uh, I would venture to say, when you look at those undecided voters, there's not many of them. And typically, if we're going to go historical, and I know we try not to go too historical with anything with Donald Trump because he seems to be the anomaly every time, but typically at this point in the race, if they're undecided, they're not going to the, to the, to the incumbent. The person who's undecided this long has been undecided because there's just something about the incumbent they cannot get over, and they eventually go to the challenger. Now, again, Donald Trump has been, the, has been different throughout his whole career. Everything about him is different. That's probably the nice way to put it. So we don't know if that's going to hold true. But, you know, I think if you're Joe Biden right now, you're happy where you are in the polls. You're happy there's not a large group of undecided voters like in 2016 to sway the election one way or the other. Probably very happy that historically those undecideds are more likely to come to him than they are Donald Trump. Next, let's move on to our good news story of the week. This week's good news story of the week is about the surge in youth voting. According to a Tufts University analysis of early voting, the youth vote has finally arrived. So far, more than 3 million young people between the ages of 18 to 29 have already voted, including 2 million among the 14 key battleground states. For example, Florida had only 44,000 18 to 29-year-olds vote in 2016. However, 
already 500,000 have voted in 2020. Dean, is this the year that the youth vote will actually decide an election and show up? Well, it, it, these reports are accurate, and I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be. Um, that is a huge increase in youth early voting. I mean, there's no there's no other explanation to that but just a profound desire to remove Donald Trump from the presidency. Um, and, and what is, is incredibly shocking to me about that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like Joe Biden has been doing a great deal of things in order to encourage that increase. Uh, I don't, you know, I, other than, you know, your typical election, but we know that young Americans, especially those uh, in the millennial and Gen Z generations are becoming increasingly liberal. They're becoming increasingly uh, more accepting of democratic socialism uh, because they see how the status quo has time and again screwed them over. There was a recent report that came out showing that millennials control a rough, a, a roughly 5% of the wealth of America. When baby boomers were the same age as millennials are now, they controlled 21% of America's wealth. So there's a ever increasing frustration in our political system amongst young voters. And when you couple that with Donald Trump, who is seen by young voters to be unacceptable, racist, misogynistic, and, and just incapable of performing this job at any decent level. I think when you couple those things, two things together, I think we are ready in this country for a youth vote surge. And if this holds up, I mean, and, and you're Joe Biden, you can't be anything other than ecstatic about these numbers because these are Democrat voters. We know that, right? We, if you look at the the cross tabs in the latest Florida poll, where you're looking at somewhere between 65 to 70% of voters within that demographic, 18 to 29, voting for Biden. So this would be huge. And I, I don't want to get too, you know, I don't want to focus too much on why Republican voters are decreasing, because it's kind of a, a morbid statement, but it, it's just the reality that you will have more and more younger voters being able to vote in this country of a more progressive ideology, and you're going to have fewer and fewer Republicans able to vote. And 
right now is the perfect time for those two things to intersect. And it, it really can't happen any sooner. You know, our economy is in, in shambles. Our federal government has absolutely no response for COVID. And young Americans see it. And young Americans are more aware of their global surroundings than any other generation. We know it doesn't have to be this way. We were raised on the internet. We've been raised with this perspective of maybe America isn't the greatest country in the world because maybe America doesn't do everything so great. So this is in incredibly um, exciting. Uh, I just hope it holds up. Dean, I couldn't agree more. When I saw the analysis released by Tufts University about the youth vote, it really gave me hope. You know, when you break down the numbers and you break down even the issues that people from 18 to 29 are voting on, I mean, talk about the stark differences between that electorate and the other electorate. The number one issue when they looked at people voting from the age of 18 to 29 was climate change. The number two most important issue was racial inequality in America. Number three was COVID. The economy wasn't even in the top three for them. It was climate change, racial inequality, and COVID. And unfortunately for Donald Trump, like Dean pointed out in Florida, those are not three issues that he does very well on. So if you're Joe Biden, you have to be ecstatic to see these early vote numbers come in. To put it really in perspective, I look at the Michigan numbers. To remind everyone, Hillary Clinton lost Michigan by 11,000 votes total. Hmm. In 2016, only 7,500 people from the age of 18 to 29 voted early. Wow. 7,500. So far, as of today, more than 150,000 have voted. If that number doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. That is a game changer in a state that was won by 11,000 no, by I Donald mean, Trump. It's incredible. And I think a lot of, I mean, listen, we're both from Florida and you know we, we try not to be too Florida focused, but I would be remiss if I did not mention how active the youth vote has been, especially in South Florida, especially since uh, the, the devastating events that happened in, in Parkland and the shooting and how those young kids mobilized, activated, and they have stayed motivated uh, in order to change our country's gun policy. So, I mean, I, a lot of credit has to go to those kids. And to piggyback on something you mentioned earlier, Joe Biden has done a lot, his campaign has done a lot to reach out to young people. They have a lot of, uh, they have a lot of progressive policies that young people I think can connect with. Uh, the selection of Kamala Harris as his VP makes a lot of young people more energized and ecstatic about the Biden-Harris ticket. But if we're gonna be honest about it and you look at these numbers and you look at the analysis, it seems very obvious that the surge in youth voting, I think maybe doesn't have a lot to do with Joe Biden, but has a lot to do that with the fact that young people are just pissed off. They're yeah. angry. They're angry that for years, the older generations have been controlling the narrative of government, that we've gotten to a point in our society that we're this dysfunctional and they realize that they can be the change. And I think it's gotten to a point where they are voting to be able to show their political power. 
You yeah. know, you look at something that happened after Parkland where they really tried to mobilize and get gun reform to happen. And they were shut down by Republicans who scoffed at them because they're young voters who don't turn out. Why would I care about a group of people who they're not going to show up? I have nothing to worry about. They're not actually going to vote. Yeah, they might not like me, but they're not actually going to show up and do something about it. Well, to me, these numbers show they're going to show up and they're going to do something. They're going to vote you out. Oh, and to me, this is, the, this is the power grab that we've been waiting for from the youth of our country and a much more progressive youth when you look at what's important to them, climate change. I mean, the older generations, correct me if I'm wrong, Dean, I doubt it shows up in the top five of most important issues to anyone above the age of 40. Yeah, no, you're, listen, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't think it has much to do about Biden, like you said. I think it has to do mostly with what you were talking about in terms of, of why they're coming out and why they're voting. And primarily, as you also mentioned, is climate change. And they should be pissed off. We should be pissed off because we're going to be alive uh, when we're living with the consequences of our previous generations complete disregard for our planet uh, and how they put profit ahead of sustainability and the human condition. And what is reassuring about this, this trend is every year, there's gonna be a whole new crop of 18 year olds and they're gonna keep coming. And that is reassuring uh, in this election and elections to come. Last up is our Dumbo of the Week. This week's Dumbo of the Week is Mark Meadows, who said this during a recent CNN interview regarding the administration's strategy for containing COVID-19. Your website is talking about, well, now we think the spread is coming from small social groups and family groups. First, it was large groups. Now it's small groups. It's now coming from all sorts of places. Well, that's exactly the, the point. Out of control. So, so here's what we have to do. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation. Why are we going to get control the pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why not make efforts to contain it? Well, we are making efforts to contain it. By running all over the country and not wearing a mask? That's what the vice president's doing. We can get into the back back and forth. Let, Let me just say this is what we need to do is make sure that we have the proper mitigation factors, whether it's therapies or vaccines or treatments, to make sure that people don't die from this. But to suggest that we're going to actually quarantine all of America, lock down our economy. No saying that. Well, they are. Joe Biden's saying that. He says, lock everybody down. We're going to have a dark winter. We're going to have a dark winter. That's what health officials say. That's what health officials say, that it's going to get worse. Dean, what was your reaction to the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, when you heard him say that we are no longer going to try to contain COVID-19 and the pandemic? I mean, my reaction is, when have they ever uh, tried to mitigate the consequences of of COVID-19? From the very beginning, they have not taken this seriously. And we are living with the consequences. Uh, And unfortunately, over 200,000 200, Americans are not even able to live with the consequences because they're dead. Because we are roughly 5% of the world's population and we have over 20% of 
of the world population's COVID-19 deaths. That is all that matters. So I'm not surprised by Mark Meadows saying what we've all known to be true, right? They just don't take this seriously enough. And also the blatant hypocrisy of, of saying, we're gonna try to take mitigation, uh, mitigating efforts, but at the same time, our president and vice president and Republican officials have been politicizing the wearing of masks from the very beginning. And we know that our best tool to fight COVID-19 before we get a vaccination is, is wearing a mask. That's what science says. And, you know, I, I'm just, at, I guess I'm numb to it all at this point because I'm just, nothing that comes out of this administration related to COVID-19 or anything else surprises me anymore. Dean, obviously I agree with everything uh, you just said. And even though we've known this for a while about the Trump administration, it was still surprising to hear them actually admit it on air that they're no longer trying to contain the virus, that it has gotten to a point where our only hope is people going to the hospital and maybe having a better, better strategy once they get to the ER or having a vaccine sometime next year. To hear that and to hear it from a White House official so blatantly was just so shocking. I, I could easily sit here and over the next 10, 15 minutes, just go over every blunder, every ineptitude that has happened with this administration with regard to the COVID-19 pandemic response. Um, but Dean, you articulated that very well. The one thing I will say instead is that everyone needs to vote. It is so important. So please, if you have not voted yet, if you're going to vote by, by if you're going to vote by mail, make sure you're checking the instructions on uh, how to vote by mail in your state. Make sure you get it into the mail by whatever deadline that you have. If you're going to vote in person, please make sure that you have an actual voting plan. You can't leave it up to chance. You can't just leave it up to how your day is going. Please go to IWillVote.com, make a plan, have an action plan of how you're going to get to the precincts. This election is so important. And a statement like that from Mark Meadows just sums up what is on the line. It's more, it's more than just policy. It's more than just climate change. It's more than just one issue. Our country is on the line this November, and we have to show up. So please go to IWillVote.com and make sure, you, make sure you know what your voting plan is going to be for this election. Now to our main event. Tonight's main event is making our prediction for the 2020 election. Dean, it's time to put all of our chips on the table and go all in. Here is how this challenge will be done. We will make our prediction for each of the 14 battleground states and our final electoral college prediction for each candidate's total. Dean, are you ready to do this? I'm ready. I'm ready to uh, beat you once again. So just in case anyone's wondering what, what I mean by that is, um, let's just say um, one of our... 2016 predictions was a little more accurate than the others, but I don't want to get into that. Listen, it's a new, it's a new election, it's a new day, it's a moment for you to redeem yourself, <laughs> and uh, I'm excited to do it. 
Uh, and, and Dean, I appreciate you for always finding a way to bring up 2016 and the fact that you were uh, right once uh, in the words of uh, saying that my father always likes to use even a blind squirrel can find a nut every once in a while. Um, I'd like to also point out who was more accurate during this uh, primary season. Uh, are you still feeling the burn? I digress. I don't want to get uh, too caught up uh, wow. in, in, in that in the in the outcome. We're all Democrats all right, let's now. Get going. No need let's to. Get going. Come on. <laughs> let's let's do it. Let's get into it. All right, Dean. Let's go ahead and get started. The first state that we're going to look at is the state of New Hampshire. Obviously, it tends to be one of the most volatile swing states. Uh, you know, New Hampshire has a large proportion of white suburban professionals, and it tends to have a good, decent proportion of conservative rural voters. Dean, how do you have New Hampshire shaking out in 2020? So with the four electoral votes, uh, I have them going to a Mr. Joseph Biden. And uh, just a brief explanation as to why. For this state in particular, Joe Biden is not Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, that's, that's it. That's all, that's all that matters. So what about you, Vince? Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I have uh, those four electoral votes going to Joe Biden as well. Uh, it's a tough state for Trump. I think it was a state that in 2016, they obviously came very close to winning. Uh, people forget how close the state of New Hampshire was. I believe Hillary won that by 0.4%, so less than 1%. Um, so it was a state that you know Trump and his team obviously have invested heavily in. That being said, the polls this time around haven't been great for uh, Trump. And additionally, I think it's just a tough state because you look at stuff like, because if you look at not only the polls, but even you know what's happening on the ground, uh, one of the largest, most conservative newspapers today in the state uh, just endorsed actually Joe Biden. For the first time ever, they endorsed a Democrat over a Republican. I feel uh, like their newspaper endorsements carry a little more weight than yeah. Than in other places. Yeah, I would agree. And I just think that it's a it's going to be a tough state this time around. It was close in 2016. And I'm with you. I have that also going to Joe Biden. All right. Our next state up is the state of Arizona. Obviously, one of the fastest changing states on the electoral map, uh, typically a Republican stronghold. Uh, it is now a true battleground state. We saw it in 2016 when they elected a Democrat to Senate. It looks like it could happen again, potentially in 2020, with another Democratic senator being elected uh, from the state of Arizona. And then additionally, with potentially a state that could go to Joe Biden. In 2016, Donald Trump won the state by 3.5%. So under 5% win for Donald Trump in Arizona. Dean, who do you see the 11 electoral votes in Arizona going to? So I believe that... Those 11 votes will be going for a Mr. Joseph Biden. Uh, and mostly for the reason that you mentioned in the beginning of your very long-winded sentence. Uh, <laughs> but it's listen, Arizona is one of the most um, rapidly changing states in the country. The demographics are changing. You have a lot of people from the Northeast moving into Arizona. Um, and I think there's going to be, I think the blue wave within the state of Arizona is just going to continue. And I think um, having someone as popular as Mark Kelly on the same ballot will help Joe Biden as well. 
Dean, once again, we are in agreement. Um, when I look at the state of Arizona, it is a state where some recent polling has shown some tightening between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden. It's become tighter and tighter, it seems, with each day uh, that we get closer to Election Day. Joe Biden, most people have him up anywhere between one to four points, depending on what pollster you're looking at. I'm with you, though. I think it does also go to Joe Biden, number one, because the demographics are there for him. And then number two, Mark Kelly is a big part of that. It's one of those rare instances where a down-ballot candidate yeah. might be more popular than the presidential candidate. And if yeah. Kelly is able to bring some votes and get Joe Biden over the finish line in Arizona, um, I think it obviously is a state that could turn blue, and I think it will turn blue. Additionally, outside of Utah, it's one of the largest Mormon populations of any state. And that's a obviously a typically a conservative vote, um, but it's a vote that really has some major issues with Donald Trump. You look at people like Jeff Flake and Mitt Romney, who who have both refused to vote for Donald Trump. Jeff Flake has endorsed Joe Biden, and Mitt Romney will not say who he voted for, but my guess is he probably did vote for Joe Biden as well, because he won't deny that either. So I think when you look at the state of Arizona, due to the larger por uh, proportion of Mormon voters, uh, typical Republicans that they would normally can count on, that mixed with the changing demographics and a very popular Democratic senator, a Democratic Senate candidate, and Mark Kelly. I also believe that uh, Joe Biden is going to be the first Democrat in recent modern times to flip the state of Arizona blue. All right, Dean, next let's move over to the great state of Minnesota. Obviously, Minnesota has some pretty big liberal cities in there, but it also has some more moderate suburbs and obviously has a very large rural communities as well in the state. Uh, Dean, in 2016, Hillary Clinton did eke out a win in the state of Minnesota, winning by 1.5% over Donald Trump. What do you see happening in 2020 in Minnesota? I think it's going to be a pretty easy victory for Joe Biden. Um, and I probably should state this now instead of repeating it over and over again, but a big portion of my rationale, and I know, you know, for you as well, is that if Joe Biden is increasingly competitive in the state of Texas, what does that mean for these other states? Um, and I think Minnesota is one of those states that will be a, a clear victory for Joe Biden. It's going to be, um, I don't think it's going to be as close as it was last time. So Dean, this is where we're going to have our first little bit of a disagreement on how oh. we see this race. Uh, I do also have Joe Biden winning the state of Minnesota, but I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think. It is actually one of the two states that I'm most concerned about that went blue in 2016 that I have concern about flipping over to Donald Trump. That next, the other state we're going to talk about next. Uh, so I'll save that for that for uh, for that explanation of why I think that. Uh, but when you look at the state of Minnesota, my concern again, there's a tightening that's happening in that state. Um, in the in recent polling, it's a state which often, it's a state that in 2016 was often ignored by the Democrats. And you're even somewhat seeing that play out towards the end here in 2020. They haven't been putting as much emphasis in Minnesota as Michigan or Pennsylvania. It's still a state that I think we will eke out that win, but I have it being a little bit closer than I think most people, or at least the general consensus is among pollsters that it will be. I think Biden will win by more than what Hillary won, 
Um, but I think it will be a little bit closer than people think. So I still have Joe Biden winning the state of Minnesota. So there's not much of that. There's not that much disagreement between us, but I do think it will be closer than what you think it will be. Now we will shift focus to that next state that I alluded to, which is the state of Nevada. Dean, it went to Hillary Clinton in 2016 by 2.4%. Obviously a large Hispanic community in the state of Nevada, also a large union in the state of Nevada. A large part of the population is in one part of the state. Dean, how do you see the state of Nevada going in 2020? So I, I, I do have some concern regarding Nevada, um, mostly because Nevada's economy is obviously so beholden to the success and or failure of Las Vegas and how well that city is doing economically. And I do believe that there will be a good portion of voters within that state um, that will be more inclined to vote for Donald Trump because they view that he will be more inclined to keep things open uh, no matter what goes on with, with COVID and, um, and is, is more likely to reaffirm a false narrative that COVID-19 isn't that dangerous and that that will in effect help the economy of Las Vegas and therefore the economy of the state of Nevada. However, I still think Joe Biden will win Nevada. And I think that's mostly predicated on what I believe to be his strong connections with, with Union America. And I feel that unlike Hillary Clinton, your average union voter, your average union male voter is more inclined to relate with Joe Biden. And I think that will give him the edge uh, in the state of, of Nevada. Again, Dean, I mentioned this you know, earlier when we were speaking at Minnesota, this is the other state that Democrats won in 2016 that you know I am very nervous about. I am more nervous about Nevada than I am Minnesota uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, polling has not been great in the state of Nevada. Number one, it's historically very difficult to poll the state, which is why a lot of pollsters are not going there. Also, the general consensus is that because Biden has such a large national lead, there isn't a need to poll Nevada. It's not what you would call the normal tipping point state, plus the different demographics in Nevada make it very much a Joe Biden type of state. I still believe Joe Biden will win. That's my actual prediction. He will win the state of Nevada, but I did go back and forth. And at one point when we were preparing for this episode, I did actually have it read because I was concerned about a lot of the things that Dean mentioned uh, in his opening about talking about his concerns about the state. Um, however, you know, when I look at it and the more I looked at some of the early vote numbers that are coming in for the Democrats, though, those can be misleading as well, because we know that historically Democrats are more likely to vote early uh, this election than Republicans. That being said, you know, I am going to, I believe Joe Biden will win Nevada. Uh, I'm hoping it's not going to be too close. Uh, I'm hoping that he's going to win it by a decent margin, but I would not be surprised if Nevada was a lot closer than a lot of pollsters think it's going to be. All right, Dean, next up is a state that's been getting a lot of attention from pollsters. That is the state of Wisconsin and it's 10 electoral votes in 2016. Donald Trump won that state by less than a percent, 0.8 of a percent. Obviously, politically, it's shaped by the two main liberal cities in Wisconsin of Milwaukee and Madison. 
And then additionally, it has a rural north and west of the state with an affluent white suburbs that lie in between. Dean, when you look at the state of Wisconsin, what is your prediction in 2020? So I, I think I think Joe Biden will also win Wisconsin. And I don't want to make this too much about our nominee of 2016. But the fact that we did have one of the least popular candidates in modern history uh, lose the state of Wisconsin by less than 1%. And the fact that the two elections prior to that Obama won by 14% and 7%. So given the, the political history or the presidential electoral history of the state of Wisconsin, I think it will go blue. I think the disaster of Foxconn um, is gonna is gonna be playing a very major role in the minds of hopefully a very large margin of Wisconsin voters. And I think, again, Joe Biden appeals to, to a voter that unfortunately Hillary Clinton was unable to appeal to. And because of those reasons, I do believe that Joe Biden will win Wisconsin. Dean, once again, we are in agreement. Uh, I also have Joe Biden winning the state of Wisconsin and then 10 electoral votes that are, are going to come from that state. For me, it's really going to come down to Milwaukee. That's going to be the difference, I think, in Wisconsin between 2016 and 2020. Um, 2016, Milwaukee had historically low turnout. I think the Democrats learned a very valuable lesson from that. Additionally, I think uh, Joe Biden, plus having uh, Kamala Harris on the ticket, is going to help energize Milwaukee and turn people out. And then also in 2016, Donald Trump did really well in a lot of those suburbs in the state of Wisconsin, and that's not going to happen in 2020. So uh, I feel pretty confident about the state of Wisconsin going to Joe Biden. All right, Dean, next up is going to be the state of Michigan. Obviously, Michigan is a big state for Donald Trump. It's a state that we've already talked about in this episode. It was the closest of all the states in 2016. He won it by 11,000 votes, 0.2%. Michigan has a pretty diverse population. It has large communities of white suburbs, union members, and obviously a large African-American population. Dean, in 2020, how do you see the state of Michigan voting? Okay. So in, in Michigan, I have Joe Biden winning as well. Um, and there's a couple reasons as to why. Uh, the first reason being that, you know, as, as many people know, uh, the automotive industry is huge in the state of Michigan. And uh, I think Michigan voters will be uh, keen to support the individual that helped save their auto industry. Um, again, a large union support also helps Joe Biden. And then it, just the polling, um, even, you know, I'm looking at the polling right now, um, even though the average had Clinton winning by three points uh, and she ended up losing obviously by 0.3, uh, the, the, the margin here is just too wide uh, for Trump to overcome. So I think, I think Joe Biden will win the state of Michigan. Dean, uh, once again, we are in agreement. I, I do believe Joe Biden will win the state of Michigan. I think it's gonna be uh, won pretty easily for him. Number one, turnout was a big problem 
in 2016. I don't think we're going to have that problem again uh, in 2020, especially judging by that youth vote. Also, like you mentioned, you know, the automotive industry is a huge industry in the state of Michigan. They know Joe Biden. They know that he helped bail them out. They're going to come through for him in a big way. So again, uh, so once again, uh, we both have Joe Biden winning that state, and that's going to be a key state. And it's a state that, frankly, uh, Joe Biden can't afford to lose, but I think he's going to win it pretty comfortably. Next up is a state that was not close in 2016, and that is the state of Iowa. Dean, Iowa has six electoral votes. It went to Obama in 2008, but it was a state that Trump carried by almost 10% in 2016. Obviously, Iowa is a rural state. It has conserv- it's a conservative-leaning state where Republicans have grown very dominant as of recent years. Uh, but it's also a state that has a lot of white working-class voters and a lot of farmers. Dean, what do you think happens in the state of Iowa in 2020? I think it's going to be very close. Um, but, you know, comparing the, the 2016 polling to the actual results you know, where Trump outperformed the average by almost six points. Uh, I don't think, I don't think Joe Biden will be able to overcome that. And I do believe Donald Trump will win uh, the state of Iowa. Okay, Dean, well, we finally have our first disagreement of the night. I have the state of Iowa going to Joe Biden in 2020. I hear what you're saying about the polling error, and trust me, uh, that's something that concerns me as well. But there was a massive statewide uh, state polling error in 2016 that I don't think we'll see repeat itself again uh, in 2020, or at least I hope we don't see itself repeat again in 2020, largely due to the fact that a lot of states like Iowa, they were not waiting by education. This time around, we are. When I look at the state of Iowa, it was a state that I honestly did not think even after Joe Biden won the nomination that we had any chance in. It wasn't a state that Joe Biden really performed well during the primary. He lost. Pete Buttigieg actually won the state of Iowa. It was not Joe Biden. However, I think it's a state that Joe Biden is going to win for two main reasons. Number one, suburbs. The suburbs in Iowa are going to turn blue once again. It was something that Obama was able to do. It's something that Biden is going to be able to imitate. And then number two, I think Trump really hurt himself with farmers. I think when you look at what he did with his trade wars, it negatively impact a lot of farmers. And I think you're, and I, and I really do believe you're going to see that backlash happen in a state like Iowa, where there isn't a lot of votes, it's going to come down to little shifts that are going to change that state. And obviously it borders states like Illinois, Wisconsin and Minnesota. So from the jump, it received a lot of media attention because it's in those media markets. And, I, and, I, and obviously, as of late, with recent polling where Biden went from not really seeing it as a swing state to all of a sudden now it's a swing state, they've dumped additional resources in the state of Iowa. I do think Joe Biden's going to pull it out, uh, and it's going to be a key part of hopefully a Joe Biden victory. So I have the state of Iowa, and it's six electoral votes going to Joe Biden. All right, Dean, next up, similar to, to Iowa, is another state that was not very close in 2016, but is typically a battleground state, and that's the state of Ohio. It is a state where Donald Trump won by 8%. Democrats would need a large turnout from African-American voters who did not turn out to have a chance in the state of Ohio. What do you see happening in 2020? So I hate to have back-to-back states for our so-called president, Donald Trump. Uh, but I do believe he's going to win Ohio again. 
albeit it will probably, probably will be a little bit closer, given that uh, unlike Hillary Clinton, uh, Joe Biden is not completely, completely ignoring the state of Ohio. Um, and I just, I don't see the demographic change that's happening in other states happening in Ohio. Actually, there's a lot of younger people fleeing the city or the state of Ohio. And that leaves behind a, an older, whiter population. Uh, it's one of the least diverse states in the country. So I think Donald Trump is going to win Ohio. Dean, unfortunately, I agree with you. Uh, you know, Ohio is a state where the demographics just aren't great for Democrats. Like you mentioned, it's a state where they'd have to rely on a huge turnout from the cities. And unfortunately, due to the economies in those cities, those cities are getting smaller in population. They're not growing. And when you look at the demographics of Ohio, even though I think, even though I agree with you, Biden will fare slightly better than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, I still believe uh, Donald Trump will have a rather easy victory in Ohio. I think it's going to be around five points. I don't think it's going to be as high as eight, like with, like in 2016, but I still think Trump will carry the state rather easily. All right, Dean, next is a newcomer to the battleground list, the state of Georgia. The Peach State is typically a Republican-leaning state. However, it has grown more diverse over the years, and recent polling shows that it is very competitive, largely due to two Senate races, which are also largely competitive. Dean, how do you see the state of Georgia shaking out in 2020? So to be honest, this, this is one of the states I, I really struggled with. I so wanted to give it to, to Biden, uh, but I've been burned one too many times in, in the state of Georgia um, between Ossoff and Abrams. I just think that there's such a concerted effort within that state uh, to suppress the African-American vote. I think Donald Trump will win Georgia. Dean, like you, I went back and forth on Georgia. Originally, I had the state for Biden, but eventually flipped it back to Trump like you did. My concerns are very similar to yours. Voter suppression, what they've done to suppress the African-American vote in Georgia was the largest deciding factor in a state that recent polling showed is statistically tied. I think it's a state that Democrats will continue to be more competitive in. I think it I think moving forward in future elections, it could be end up being it could end up being one of the most important states to Democrats. I just feel like we're one election cycle still away in that state, unfortunately. I could be wrong and I I'm, I hope that I'm wrong in Georgia. I think it's going to take an overwhelming turnout, though, from Atlanta to be able to make it happen. We'll see. I'd love to be wrong. I think Dean would admit he'd love to be wrong about this one, too. But we, I, I as well, Dean, I have the state of Georgia and its 16 electoral votes going to Donald Trump. All right, Dean, next up is a state that was pretty close in 2016 and lately has become a battleground state, and that is the state of North Carolina. North Carolina is similar to Georgia in the sense that it has a large group of moderate professionals, black voters, and college-educated students, and additionally, big stretches of the state that are more rural and whiter and conservative. In 2016, the state of North Carolina voted for Donald Trump by 4%. What do you think happens here in 2020? So like Georgia, this was, you know, this was obviously hard as well. It's a toss-up state for a reason. And I, I, I have Joe Biden winning the state of North Carolina. I really can't I, I, re I really can't explain, you know, why I think North Carolina will turn blue 
whereas Georgia will not. Um, because listen, both of those states have very similar changes in, in their their population. Um, and you, like you've mentioned, you know, specifically in North Carolina, you have a lot of Northeasterners moving to, to Raleigh. Um, and I think, I think that coupled with hopefully an increased turnout of the African-American vote will carry the day for Joe Biden. Um, I am obviously hearing myself and it's still, you know, it, it is so similar to Georgia. Uh, I just think Joe Biden will win. Will win North Carolina. You know, Dean, the similarities to Georgia are definitely there. Another state where in 2016 polling was very deceptive. I think Hillary Clinton went in on election day with a two to three percent lead. Very similar to what George. What, very similar to what Joe Biden has now. Obviously, that polling was wrong. He ended up be, he, Donald Trump ended up winning by basically four percent. But like you, I'm awarding the 15 electoral votes of, in North Carolina to Joe Biden, and I have an actual reason why. And I struggled with this one, Dean, just like please, you did. Please enlighten me. You know, I know Missouri is a show me state, but I think when it comes to politics, I'm one of those people, I have to see it to believe it. So I guess they're all show me states to me. And I've seen from North Carolina that Democrats can win. They have elected Democrats statewide if you look at the 2018 midterms, they did it. They elected a Democratic governor. So we've seen the ability to win in a state that is dominated typically by Republicans. So that was really the tipping point reason for me. You know, Georgia, not that previous elections necessarily are going to indicate what's going to happen, but you look at 2018 and we fell just short in Georgia. And a lot of that was due to voter suppression. But yeah. in North Carolina, we got over the hump, and now we have a Democrat-elected governor. And though he's trying to find ways to lose it, I think we're also going to get a Democrat-elected <laughs> senator in Cal Cunningham, also a very popular um, race. And I think it's also a race where it's going to help Joe Biden as well. But yeah, I'm with you. I have North Carolina going to Joe Biden. Uh, it was a difficult state for me, but Georgia was much more difficult than North Carolina. I never have wavered on North Carolina going to Joe Biden because of what happened in 2018 with the midterms. So I pretty much, as long as polling was going to show it, I was going to be bought in. Uh, so North Carolina, though, I understand your struggle with it. For me, I've always felt very comfortable uh, with North Carolina. There are some states coming up that I felt much, I had a much more difficult decision with than North Carolina. So yeah, I have the 15 electoral votes in North Carolina uh, going to Joe Biden. Speaking of states that I had a difficult decision selecting a victor, Dean, we have our home state, the state of Florida. It went to Donald Trump by only 1.2%. Obviously, Dean, we live in Florida. We know that it's a very diverse state mm -hmm. from the cities of Miami and Tampa and Orlando, Orlando to the Panhandle. It always is one of the most prized possessions of any political campaign. If you turn the TV on right now, all you see are political ads, mostly Joe Biden because Donald Trump is out of money, but all <laughs> you see is political ads in the state of Florida. Dean, this is a big one. It is. Who do you have it winning is. Florida in 2020? So uh, this is probably one part reason uh, and two parts emotion, to be fair. Um, I'll start with the, you know, the rationale behind it. 
And, you know, there's two or three parts to it. Uh, the first part being that Florida has one of the oldest populations in the country. That population is heavily condensed in southeastern Florida, which is also the most liberal part of the state of Florida. You couple that with an increasingly um, growing Puerto Rican population within the state. I don't, I hope, I hope, and I believe uh, that they, those Puerto Ricans that were on the island uh, during Hurricane Maria will remember that moment in which Donald Trump rejected aid to the country of, sorry, rejected aid to Puerto Rico, uh, but at the same time was very willing to throw toilet paper at them. Uh, a president that had conversations about selling Puerto Rico for Greenland. And I think they will, they will remember that. And lastly, I think the youth vote in the state of Florida is gonna come out. It's gonna come out huge. And that's the rationale behind it. And the emotion behind my prediction is that I cannot, uh, I, I just, I, I will be so ashamed of my state if it votes for Donald Trump again. So for those reasons, I am going to say Joe Biden will win the state of Florida. Dean, Florida for me was also difficult. It's an emotional decision for both of us due to us both currently living in the state of Florida. It was, for me, Dean, this is one of those states where I have my mind saying one thing and my heart saying something else. My mind tells me that Joe Biden's going to win for the same exact reasons that you're saying. My heart tells me that he's going to lose because I continually find myself disappointed in the state of Florida. We've brought up the 2018 Gillum race several times now. And it was gut-wrenching. And Joe Biden had a has a very similar lead to what the polls showed for Gillum. And you honestly can make the argument that Gillum might have had a more impressive lead heading into the final stretch than even Biden has right now in the state of Florida. That being said, I can't help but look at a lot of the reasons that you brought up. The youth vote is going to be huge this time around. I think Democrats have un understand that they need to find a way to get turnout in Miami-Dade up. They learned that from 2018. However, with all that being said, I'm going to make the emotional decision, and I'm going with my heart here. I think the state of Florida is going to go to Donald Trump. I think, I, I, I think I'm going to be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But it's no, just listen, very difficult it. for me to give the state to Joe Biden. I have been fooled too many times by the state of Florida. I'm also probably more biased because of the fact that I live on the West coast of Florida, which is basically Trump central. I see people who are driving around with not only Trump flags, but literally Trump wraps around their car of like Trump 2020 and MAGA all up and down their car. Like I see that. And so I'm probably being jaded a little bit by that. 
But, you know, we've been disappointed before. Uh, and trust me, it pains me to give those 29 electoral votes to Donald Trump. And I hope I'm wrong. And just based on the rest of the way I've worked out the map, speaking logically, it's a state where if I really was betting on this, I would actually bet that Joe Biden would win. Because just based on how my map shake, shapes out, I just don't see how he doesn't based on what I have happening. But that being said, I'm going to go with my heart here and I'm going to say that Joe Biden is going to lose the state of Florida and that it will go to Donald Trump and Donald Trump will win by razor thin margins. It's going to be close either way. I think, you know, no matter who wins, it's yeah. going to be close. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going to be close. And listen, I, I get that. Um, listen, we've been burned uh, in 2016 and then, you know, it, it was a double whammy in, in 2018, obviously with Gilman, Gillum and then, you know, we can't forget Nelson um, and he lost by an even closer margin uh, to Rick Scott, who is single-handedly probably one of, I mean, that's kind of, let me rephrase that, who lost to Rick Scott, who is, in my opinion, uh, right behind Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham for being the worst senator in, in America right now. So I get it. And uh, only time will tell. And Dean, you know, to play devil's advocate and to tell, you know, our listeners why I think there is some optimism in the state of Florida, though I, though we have been burned a bunch and though I'm, I think Donald Trump will win the state of Florida, besides the reasons uh, Dean mentioned, there is a little bit of show me in the state of Florida as well. Uh, in 2018, though, uh, Gillum and who ran for governor lost and so did the senators, there was one statewide Democrat that won. And that was the agricultural, agricultural commissioner, Nikki Freed. And the one thing I'd like to point out about her win was in the primary, she was not the favorite for the for the uh, Democratic nomination, but she had one major endorsement, and that was a Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. who endorsed her very early on. And she went on to win the Democratic nomination, shocked a lot of people. And then she actually went on to win the, uh, then she went on to win the, um, election as the state secretary of agriculture. So, you know, yeah. there is some hope there and she showed that she's able to do it. And I would argue that Joe Biden's path is going to be a lot more like hers than maybe a Gillum's path would be, right? Yeah. She counted a lot more on uh, white, older voters, Jewish voters. That was her coalition. And then she benefited a little bit from Gillum's turnout with African-American voters. Um, and that's how she got into her to win her nomination. And she's going to be probably the next Democrat, the chosen one to run against DeSantis. So let's hope she can recreate the magic one more time. All right, Dean, we have two more states left now that we have not called. Those are the two battleground states of Pennsylvania and Texas, both with rather large electoral votes tied to them. Texas is not one that we typically think of as a battleground state. It, it seems to be a toss up. Let's start with Texas and then we'll end with what I think we both can agree is probably the most pivotal tipping point state, which is the state of Pennsylvania. So Dean, when we look at the state of Texas, 38 electoral votes, obviously it tends to be a Republican stronghold, though it's had times where it has been rather uh, democratic, especially in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and then even as recent as uh, having a governor in the 1990s. Dean, Texas is obviously more competitive now, though, due to its growing suburbs, um, cities like Austin, and large minority voting blocks such as Hispanics, African-Americans, and obviously the Asian-American community as well. 
Texas is a tough state, Dean. It'd be a big win for Joe Biden, but a but a state that has yet to really show statewide that a Democrat can win. What happens in 2020? You know, one of the most dangerous emotions or feelings that, uh, be it the population of a country or the population of a, a state can have, uh, and that's complacency. And I believe that complacency will be the downfall uh, for Donald Trump in Texas. And I think Joe Biden will win the state of Texas. So the reason why I'm talking about complacency and, and Donald Trump's downfall in Texas is because you, get, you have to think about that average Texan Republican who just assumes Texas will be red because it has always been red. So they, they may not have that, that sense of urgency to come out and vote for Donald Trump in the general election. And then you combine that with a deep and profound desire on the Democratic Party's behalf to flip the state of Texas. I think that's powerful. Um, and then, like you said, you know, Texas is, is increasingly becoming a more democratic friendly state. You mentioned Austin. There, is, uh, there was an article that we were discussing earlier talking about you know, how Chinese Americans within the state of Texas, which is a large, pop, large population group, um, surprise, they're not happy about Donald Trump calling COVID Kung flu. Um, who would have known? And we can't ignore the horrid reality of, of how Donald Trump has treated uh, the Latino country, the Latino community in the country. And that Latino community, be it Mexican American, are more connected to the effects uh, on the border than any other Hispanic group of voters in the country. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. But I think Joe Biden will win the state of Texas. Dean, I also struggled immensely with Texas. For me, the most difficult state for me to forecast was Texas. Again, my heart versus what my mind tells me. Everything you said about Texas, I, I agree with. You know, it's going to be one of those states where I think complacency on the GOP side might cost them. I think turnout is up heavily uh, for Democrats this time around. One of the things that scares me a little bit about Texas is that, again, I talked about show me states. It hasn't shown that it can elect a Democrat statewide. Beto O'Rourke came very close in the Senate against a very unpopular Ted Cruz, uh, but fell just short. Now, you could argue that the only one maybe more unpopular than Ted Cruz might be Donald Trump in the state of Texas. So that bodes well, uh, potentially for Democrats, but it hasn't showed that it can elect a statewide Democrat in a very long time. Additionally, Joe Biden and his team has done a decent job, you know, putting a little bit of money more than most Democrats in the state of Texas. But it's been no secret that people like Beto O'Rourke and uh, Julian Castro have been very disappointed that the Biden campaign won't invest more. They feel that it's ripe for the taking and they have actually criticized the campaign a little bit, begging them to spend more money there. And then obviously you have Joe Biden's oil comment. 
which is going to be heavily politicized moving forward. So my mind tells me Trump's going to win it by a slim, slim margin. My heart, though, says exactly what you said, Dean, which is a, it's a state that has become complacent for, for the GOP, the changing demographics, everything that you mentioned uh, in your intro. This is one where I'm going to go with my heart this time. And I'm also going to award the state of Texas to Joe Biden. It has been a state that I've been calling for Joe from back in the summer. I thought Texas, I've been screaming Texas is a swing state. Listen, I, I would not be surprised if Trump won. And I'll probably look back on this recording and think, why did I this one time go with my heart? But of all the states, this is the one where my heart finally won over. And really, the, the reason behind it is a grassroots effort in the state of Texas. You know, the Biden campaign has put about four to eight million dollars, I think, in the state of Texas, somewhere in that range, which is more than any other Democrats ever put in the state of Texas in recent modern history. Probably more than any Democrats ever spent in Texas because it's Texas and, uh, you know, the amount being spent on this election is astronomical. But really, the reason that gives me hope that gives me hope about Texas is that it's only been 4 million and you look how close the polls are. And to me, there's a real grassroots effort happening in Texas. It is coming from people organizing together, not necessarily a campaign. This is as raw and authentic as you can get. And I believe at the end of the day, that grassroots effort, those people who own in Texas who almost help get better or work over the hump, that's what's going to be the way Joe Biden pulls off a monumental upset. Because let's be honest, just so everyone's clear, the polling is not necessarily supporting what Dean and I are showing. I think most forecasts, including 538 and RCP, have it going to Donald Trump uh, if you look at the polling averages. But for me, it's that grassroots effort. And I will, I will say this, Dean, and I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I, I'm sure you probably will. If Joe Biden pulls off this upset, the DNC... And Joe Biden, once again, need to thank Beto O'Rourke because it's his organization in that state that put it on the map. And I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and say, well, Vince, you know, you just said the same thing about Florida and how you couldn't go with your heart. What's the difference between Florida and Texas? And if you remember, I kind of alluded to the fact that I would be going Texas blue uh, because I said there's another similar state that's very much like Florida. And those states are kind of identical. And if we're going to use just basic logic here, it's going, to be, it's going to be very difficult for, in my opinion, someone, a Democrat, to lose Florida but win Texas. I could see the other way happening, but losing Florida and winning Texas, just based on historical data, there's not a lot to support that. The difference is, I think the Democrats are more organized in Texas than they are in Florida. The infrastructure has been there since 2018 because of Better O'Rourke, and they are pissed off. It's also... Um, a state that's been really lately hammered due to COVID-19. So for all those reasons, uh, Dean, who would have thought we're both calling the state of Texas for Joe Biden? Yeah, and I, I, you know, you alluded to this and, you know, in, in a week or two, we may look back at this moment and, and say to ourselves, wow, what were we thinking? We're feeling I mean, I, you know, just another thing that we really haven't touched on is you look at these registration numbers in the suburbs of Austin, record levels, 
of registration and early voting. Um, and then also the early voting uh, amongst young voters in the state of Texas. Um, it's, it, it just, it feels like this is the moment, this is the time we have the perfect candidate uh, and they have, have the perfectly incorrect candidate for the moment. If not now, when? All right, Dean, that leaves us with our last state, the most important state, the tipping point state. Uh, when you look at Nate Silver and his 538 algorithm, there is no state that weighs more importantly on this election than the state of Pennsylvania. Obviously, in 2016, for the first time in a long time, it flipped back to the Republicans. Donald Trump won the state by 0.7%, less than 1%. Obviously, the state has a large rural area, but also formerly Republican suburbs that are now switching more blue. And additionally, two major big cities in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Dean, this is the last one. There's 20 electoral votes on the line. This is the most important state. Does the son of Scranton win his home state in 2020? So I do believe that Joe Biden, AKA the son of Scranton, will win the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I don't think it will be necessarily close. I know people like to point at Pennsylvania uh, and the polling back in 2016. Um, and, you know, albeit they did have Hillary Clinton winning, um, when it came to closer to election day, that margin was really closing in. And I believe, you know, it was like a 1.9% swing for Trump. Biden is up on average by five points from what I'm seeing. And he's making a all out effort to win the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, there's no complacency. It's all hands on deck in the state of Pennsylvania. And I think Joe Biden will win the state of Pennsylvania. Dean, obviously, uh, on this state, it, it's a difficult one. It's a state that really uh, has typically been a stronghold for Democrats. And obviously, in 2016, it sent shockwaves uh, throughout the Democratic base. It was a state that we never expected to lose. Um, and it's a state that we probably took for granted a little bit in 2016. However, in 2020, we have not. And I, like you, believe the son of Scranton is going to turn the state blue. Uh, there isn't a better candidate to turn the state blue than Joe Biden. Let's face it, I think a lot of the Biden appeal was his ability to connect with a lot of those voters in Scranton, in Erie, Pennsylvania, areas that went Democrat typically. Uh, but for whatever reason, in 2016, they turned to Trump. He's going to have to win in those two areas. And I think that's why he's on. That's why he's our nominee, because that was his pitch. These people know me. I know them and they're going to elect me. And for all the states we've looked at, this is the state. This is the state right here. Yep. If Biden wins this state, takes care of business, obviously in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, it doesn't matter what Florida does. It doesn't matter what North Carolina does. It doesn't matter what any states do. You do that, and you're president. And Joe Biden has stuck a flag in that state and said, I'm taking my home state. And I think he will. I think he's going to deliver. He spent time. And he, it was more than just him saying it. He put sweat equity in. He did a whole train tour going throughout the state of Pennsylvania in a lot of areas that Hillary and the Democrats never visited in 2016. 
and areas of Pennsylvania that Trump did not visit in 2016 or 2020. And in those small rural communities that Joe Biden showed up in, showing up matters, knowing who the person is matters. And one of the things the Biden campaign said about Pennsylvania that I think was a great strategy was, you know, a lot of these rural communities where that train stopped, they know they're not going to win, but it's not about winning. It's just about getting another five or 10% because that adds up. And if they can do that in each one of those small counties, it's going to be the difference in this election. And I really do think that Joe Biden and the, and the Biden campaign has invested heavily in the state of Pennsylvania and the son of Scranton is going to win his home state. And that's going to be the deciding factor in this election. So Dean, now it's time to tally up what we had. What was your final electoral vote for this 2020 election? What did you have the final outcome being? So my total will be 166 electoral votes for the worst president in American history, Donald Trump, and then 372 electoral votes for Joseph Biden. And for me, I have the worst president of our lifetimes, and hopefully after this election, no longer our president, receiving 188 electoral votes. That's Donald Trump receiving 188 electoral votes. And I have Joseph Robinette Biden winning a mandate with 350 electoral votes. Dean, we, we both are counting on big things this election, and we're hoping for that blue wave to, to come about. I hope that we're right. The blue tsunami, it's coming. And I hope for our listeners' sake that we're right as well. That's it for this episode of the Left and Lefter podcast. The next time we will speak with you will probably be after this election has been decided, and we'll have the ability to uh, go over some of our projections and see how off uh, or correct we were. And I think I speak for both Dean and I when I say I hope we are both wrong and that Joe Biden wins by even a larger amount than we think, Uh, though I I would agree. Yeah, let's let's go for it. Hey, you never know. You never know. So and the only way, uh, you know, we are going to win, regardless of what polling shows, regardless of what happens over the next couple of days, the only way we can win again is by everyone voting. So please, once again, we've already made this pitch. But if you haven't haven't already voted yet, please go to IWillVote.com, make an action plan to determine how you're going to vote. If you you prefer to call them and you have any direct questions, you can also call them on their hotline at 833-336-8683. That's 833-336-8683. Also, you can text the word ACCESS, A-C-C, ESS to 43367. That's access to 43367. Please, once again, make that action plan. Make sure you know how you're going to vote. It's so important. It doesn't matter what the polls show. If you don't show up, we learned this in 2016, you can have the biggest polling lead possible. But if your people, the people that they are surveying, don't show up, it is going to be for nothing. We have to show up. Show up like your lives depend on it. Yeah, please. I mean, you know, this is our this is our moment and this is our time to to show the world and our country and more importantly our fellow Americans that we are, we are just so much better than this nonsense uh, that we've been having to put up with for the last 4 years. And you know, we have the power. It's up to us and uh, I have I have faith that we will we will take this country back and we will move in a brighter 
more unified direction. Additionally, beside yourself, this election could come down to one or two votes. So please make sure, yes, that you have an action plan, but check on your family members, text your friends. Every vote is going to count. This election is going to be close. Please make sure that you check with everyone and that you turn out your family and friends and that we do everything we can to elect Joe Biden president. That is it for this episode of the Left and Lefter podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Left and Lefter podcast. Join the Left and Lefter community at leftandlefter.com and follow us on Twitter at Left and Lefter. Left and Lefter.